everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the Tuesday, January 17th edition. is brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. My name is Andrew Halp. I'm your reader for today, uh, filling in here on this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. Well, some of our headlines for today's episode include Reynolds takes scalpel to Iowa government, re-elected governor... Pa- Pauses rulemaking, eyes fewer agencies. That's a story by Aaron Murphy and Tom Barton. Our headline story is Group Continues Effort to Preserve Brit Bank Building. Repair work on the back wall of the old Brit Bank building is shown in the photo. It's expected to begin in September. Boy, that thing is in miserable shape back there. Oh my gosh, it's probably a 100-year-old building though. Well, maybe 105 years old or so. About that. Oh, I was right. Hey, how about that? 1916. So what was I, two years off? Uh, pretty close there. Yeah, that's when a lot of those uh, block buildings are built in those small towns. For whatever reason, in the mid-teens, uh, mid-1900s uh, teens, as in like uh, 1913, 1915, it seems like there's a lot of construction in small towns. A lot of those block buildings are from that time. So they must have had a lot of money rolling through at that point. I'm not really sure. That's one of those history areas that um, I'm not exactly sure of. But those stories and more on this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. Uh, before we do that, we're going to take a check on this forecast, as it is so important because we're expecting some uh, possibly nasty weather out there. So be careful if you're out and about. For today, your Wednesday. This is being brought to you on Wednesday morning. You're listening to it on the air. This is the Tuesday edition. Uh, snow for today. A 30% chance of snow, mainly after 4 this afternoon. Cloudy conditions with a high near 32. Winds from the east and northeast up to uh, 21 miles per hour. New snow accumulation of less than one inch possible. For tonight, snow. Snow could be heavy at times. Low around 26 degrees. East-northeast wind around 14 miles per hour, gusting as high as 18. Chance of precipitation is 100%. New snow accumulation up to 8 inches possible. So I want to bring a shovel with you if you're going out and about. For tomorrow, your Thursday, expect a 50% chance of snow mainly before noon, mostly cloudy with a high near 29. Those winds from the north and northwest around 14 miles per hour, gusting to as high as 21 miles per hour. New snow accumulation of less than a half inch possible. Thursday night, mostly cloudy, low around 16. Friday, mostly cloudy, high near 23. Why don't we warm it back up? We can burn off some of that snow. That'd be nice. We just got rid of it down here. Oh, I think we're all ready for spring. But anyway, again, for today, your Wednesday here in Mason City, you can expect a 30% chance of snow after 4 in the afternoon, but otherwise cloudy conditions, a high near 32. Enjoy some of that snow while it's not around. All right, moving on now to the headlines here and the main stories. We'll start it off with that story about the bank building. Group continues effort to preserve Brit Bank building. This written by Rob Hillsland of the Summit Tribune. Formed officially with Articles of Incorporation in January 2015, the Brit Group, B-R-I-T-T Group, is continuing work on its first major project, which is saving and preserving the former First State Bank building in Brit. Headed by former Brit Mayor Jim Nelson, the Brit Group has also consisted of original board member Gary Kearns, Gary Gellner, Carolyn DeCruf, Lori Eden, Alan Eden, and Skip Miller of Brit, and Betty Moylan, who recently moved to Myrtle Beach. 
The organization's mission is to beautifully restore and invest today and tomorrow. Attorney Earl Hill helped the group set up its nonprofit status, volunteering his time to get it established legally and file its first year's tax returns. The group's first project is a doozy, the 1916 building that was designed by well-known architect John Henry Jeffers for Commercial State Bank. It is best known as the former First State Bank, but housed numerous, numerous other things over the years. Jeffers also designed the State of Wisconsin's exhibition building for the 1904 St. Louis World Fair, the Carnegie Library in Clear Lake, and a 1919 prairie-style home on First Avenue Southwest in Britt. Many of his buildings are on the National Register of Historic Places, a listing the Britt Group was originally seeking for the former bank building. We talked to some people and an official with the state of Iowa about the Register of Historic Places, Nelson said. Unfortunately, the prior owner gutted too much of the original work out of the middle of the building. It's such a beautiful building that we don't want to let it go. The Brick Group has already invested an estimated $50,000 in saving the building since purchasing it from the city for $35 in 2014. Funds have come from Lori Eden, grants, and a couple of spaghetti dinner fundraisers that collected approximately $1,500. One of the grants was from the W. David Lay Foundation, associated with the original owners of Farmers Trust and Savings Bank in Brit, Buffalo Center, Lakota Lake Mills, and Bryceland, Minnesota. The goal is to get the building to the point where we can sell it, said Nelson, noting that the west half of the original building had to be torn off due to deterioration. Although... The basement portion of that half is still there. Maybe it could be a hotel with businesses down below or just a hotel. We're open to whatever idea someone comes up with. So the group put together drawings and pictures of what the building may look like restored as a hotel. They were assisted by four Iowa State University architectural students who assisted as part of a class project. Nelson said the restored building could be named Center in Maine, whether housing a hotel, motel, apartments, mini-mall, or some combination. He cited the community's need of additional motel rooms and apartments, saying that retail space could also be added. We'd still like to do more and add on to it, but money talks, Nelson said. We're certainly open to most anything. Nelson said upper-level floorboards are in pretty good condition. The main floor is almost entirely solid concrete and metal. It is built well with I-beam construction, in addition to windows repairing some water damage to a portion of the tall first-floor ceiling is also on the list of repairs, as is some replumbing and electrical wiring. The portion of the building that remains is approximately 80 feet long and 40 feet wide. The whole basement that remains is about 120 to 130 feet long. One-fourth of the full original building never had a basement underneath. The basement has been used for apartments, living quarters, storage, and a barber shop in the past. It's salvageable because of that and the good concrete floor, Nelson said. It would be nice if someone would say, I could use a building like that. That is why we put a new roof on it. The storied history of the building includes housing many other businesses after First State Bank relocated across the street by 1980. That list includes a beauty shop, commodities, and brokerage firm, boutique, and photography studio. It was kind of a mini-mall for a while because two or three businesses were in there at the same time, Nelson said. 
The BRIC group also plans beyond the old bank building restoration. It's not just a one-time project that the BRIC group is undertaking, Nelson said. The idea is to keep going indefinitely. We've picked a big one to start with. All right, our next front page story. Reynolds takes scalpel to Iowa's government. Re-elected governor pauses rulemaking and eyes fewer agencies. The story written by Aaron Murphy and Tom Barton of the Courier Des Moines Bureau, airing here in the Mason City Globe Gazette, Dateline Des Moines, Iowa. Iowa's state government could soon look decidedly different from it did when Governor Kim Reynolds first took office in 2017. The Republican governor has signed into state law many conservative policies on taxes, elections, and abortion restrictions. And during her tenure, state lawmakers and voters embedded into the state constitution expanded gun rights. Now, Reynolds is changing the shape of the state government itself. She is proposing to restructure state government by streamlining the number of cabinet-level state agencies from 37 to 16. And by executive order, she has placed a four-year moratorium on state rulemaking, the process of adding detailed rules to implement newly passed state laws. Like any large organization, government is marked by bureaucracy's natural tendency to grow. If that growth isn't constantly checked, and rechanneled towards its core function, it quickly takes on a life of its own, Reynolds said this past week in the governor's annual condition of the state address. Streamlined state. Reynolds' proposal to cut by more than half the number of cabinet-level state agencies will require legislation, which may be introduced as early as this week, her office said. The proposal would continue an effort already underway. In 2019, she made Debbie Durham the director of both the Workforce Development and Low-Income Housing Departments, and in 2020 made Kelly Garcia director of both the Human Services and Public Health Departments. Last year, Reynolds proposed merging the former state Human Services and Public Health Departments. That merger now is in a multi-year process of being affirmed in state law. The new Department of Health and Human Services affects hundreds of thousands of Iowans, including those on Medicaid. Reynolds said Iowa's 37 executive branch cabinet members is significantly more than neighboring states and other states with similar populations and state budgets. However, that number includes not just state department heads, but also heads of state boards and councils. It's a broad group of employees that extends beyond state departments, including the heads of appointed boards, including the Iowa Utility Board, Iowa Lottery Authority, STEM Council, and the Division of Banking. Reynolds' office provided a flowchart of 38 state government agency positions under the governor's control. It includes the Department of Commerce, although the governor's office said it does not count Commerce Director Katie Averill as a cabinet member. Including just department heads, Iowa has 17. That is closer in number to cabinets in neighboring states and those with similar-sized populations and state budgets with the exception of Illinois, which ranged between 15 and 27, according to the Council of State Governments. The council lists 30 Iowa cabinet members, including the governor. The Kentucky-based nonprofit is the nation's largest nonpartisan organization serving all three branches of state elected and appointed officials. The governor's office did not provide specifics as to how it would merge or realign cabinet departments, stating it would release more details once legislation has been introduced. The governor 
However, provided a broad outline in her proposed state budget for the state fiscal year that starts July 1st. The proposal seeks to centralize similar programs that exist across several agencies into a single department with the resources, experiences, and subject matter expertise to achieve the best outcomes for Iowans. Reynolds proposes expanding the Administrative Hearings Division with the Department of Inspections and Appeals and creating a new professional licensing division to include health and occupational licenses. More than 100 professional licensing functions are currently spread across 11 agencies. Also, merge community-based corrections with the Department of Corrections. Align the Board of Educational Examiners, College Student Aid Commission, STEM Advisory Council, and other education-related services with the Department of Education. Also, finally here, fold the efforts of the Department on Aging, Department of Human Rights, Early Childhood Iowa, and other human services-focused organizations with the recently formed Department of Health and Human Services. Reynolds staff said the governor's restructuring proposal can be accomplished without laying off a single state government worker, although the plan will include not filling some vacant state job openings. The size of Iowa state government has grown steadily over the past two decades, according to state data, from just more than 46,000 full-time workers in 2005 to nearly 56,000 workers in 2021. The number of state workers has risen annually with exceptions in 2010 and 11 on the heels of the recession and in 2020 during a pandemic. Republican leaders in both the Iowa House and Senate said they're supportive of the proposal, but note they will reserve judgment until they can until they see the actual bill. I think the Department of Human Services and Department of Public Health merger has shown us that there is a path for us to be able to do this when we have good people at the helm with making sure we can accomplish that, said House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford. We've already proven with one of the larger organizations of state government that can be done, and I think that that's really been a good roadmap we'll be able to follow. So I think there will be support in the legislature to support that. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, a Republican from Grimes, echoed Grassley. Sometimes it doesn't make sense where different departments are located, and so take a holistic look at that is, is something that is needed, and I'm excited that she put some effort into it, Whitfer said. Democratic state lawmakers said they want to see Reynolds' proposal to ensure Iowans' lives will be, not be disrupted by the process. Zach Walls, leader of the minority party, Senate Democrats from Coralville said the state should exercise caution, citing the state's 2016 transition to private management of its $6 billion Medicaid program. It's the beginning of what will be a very long conversation. Government reorganization bills always take many years, a lot of work, a lot of effort. It's not something that should be done willy-nilly, he said. Reorganization bills should be done carefully, deliberately, and most critically in a bipartisan way. The fact that this is the first time that I think either Democratic leader heard about this during the condition of the state address doesn't send a lot of good signs about what's to come on that effort. Rule-making pause. Reynolds' executive order places a four-year moratorium on state agencies drafting new administrative rules 
and also directs state agencies to conduct a cost-benefit review of every rule and regulation they have on the books and to evaluate whether there are less restrictive alternatives. Iowa's administrative code contains over 20,000 pages and 190,000 restrictive terms, putting undue burden on Iowans and the state's economy, increasing costs for employers, slowing job growth, and impacting private sector investments, Reynolds said. Lawmakers said the moratorium is not expected to impact rulemaking resulting from new laws passed by the General Assembly. The Iowa Administrative Code is updated every two weeks year-round. The current page count for the Iowa Administrative Code is 20,285 pages, nearly 10 times the volume when the modern code was established in 1975, according to the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency. However, the number of rules in the Iowa Administrative Code has decreased by an average of nearly 100 rules a year over roughly roughly the last five years. There are currently 24,881 rules in the Iowa Administrative Code, compared with 25,356 as of February 1, 2018, according to the agency. According to the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, which gathered and analyzed the regulations of 46 states plus the District of Columbia between June of 2015 and August 2019, Iowa had 160,000 regulator restrictions based on the number of occurrences of the words and phrases shall, must, may not, required, and prohibited in each of the state's regulations. Iowa ranked number 10 in terms of having the most regulatory restrictions. South Dakota had the least restrictive regulations with almost 44,000 restrictions. Alaska, Arizona, Idaho, Kansas, Montana, Nevada, and North Dakota are other states with fewer than 75,000 restrictions. 16 states had fewer than 100,000 regulatory restrictions in their administrative codes. I think it's a great idea. I had a bill two or three years ago to do something very similar, Whitford said, of Reynolds' rulemaking moratorium. Because again, over time, rules just continue to add up, and very rarely do you go in and take a hard look at which rules don't make sense anymore. Some issue advocacy groups, however, are not as excited. Wally Taylor, with the Iowa chapter of the environmental advocacy organization, the Sierra Club, disputed many of the claims made by Reynolds in her executive executive order, including that state rules and regulations are costly to employers and inhibit economic, economic activity or growth, or that they create a burden to Iowans. Taylor said while Reynolds' executive order aims to create a more stable regulatory environment and provide businesses with certainty, he said the order does not consider the impact on Iowans' lives. It is all about protecting business, business, Taylor said. Sierra Club's position, at least as to the rules we regularly deal with, is that many of the rules are too favorable to business and should be strengthened. The governor's order appears designed to do just the opposite. All right, our third and final front page article, National Guard still struggling to recruit in wake of pandemic. This is an Iowa Capital Dispatch story written by Jared Strong, airing here on the front page of the Mason City Globe Gazette. Recruitment has continued to be a challenge for the Iowa National Guard. A lingering effect of the coronavirus pandemic, Major General Ben Corral said in his annual Condition of the Guard address last week. 
The number one challenge to readiness has become the strength and our ability to recruit and retain quality soldiers and airmen, said Coral, who leads the state National Guard as its adjutant general. As we exit the COVID-19 era, national economic, educational, societal trends have increased competition for talent, which has decreased the incentive to serve in our military. Last year was the worst year for U.S. military recruiting in about five decades, he said. Correll addressed a joint meeting of the Iowa legislature Thursday to give his condition of the guard address at the Iowa State Capitol. The Iowa Army National Guard, which accounts for the bulk of service members in the state, is authorized to have more than 6,800 members and is operating at about 98% of of that total, said Captain Kevin Waldron, a guard spokesperson. That's down from about 102% two years ago, but it's still relatively high. In 2016, it was 91%, according to state records. The Guard is allowed to exceed 100% to buoy against the losses of service members who retire or complete their contracts. We're at about 98%, which is still absolutely means that we can serve the people of Iowa, serve any kind of mission that we're asked to do, Waldron said. So we are not seeing it as a significant crisis. Guard members provide assistance during disasters and emergencies in Iowa and can be deployed abroad for combat and other missions. About 240 soldiers were deployed last year to strengthen NATO's presence in Poland, which borders war-torn Ukraine. Early in the pandemic, soldiers staffed COVID-19 testing sites and transported test samples, among other tasks. About 200 Guard members helped clear debris in Lynn County from the 2020 derecho. The Iowa National Guard is composed of the Army, Iowa Army National Guard and the Iowa Air National Guard and has about 9,000 members. More than two-thirds of them serve part-time, usually one weekend each month, and have other full-time jobs or are students. The pandemic had an immediate impact on guard recruitment when schools were closed. That, that limited the contact recruitment officers could have with high school students who were Nearing graduation, a key source of new recruits, Waldron said. We are actively working on getting back into schools after COVID-19 restrictions, he said. Correll, in his Thursday address, urged state lawmakers to continue to support the Guard's service scholarships, which provide college tuition assistance for its members. He said the scholarships are an important incentive to recruit and retain service members. The Guard's annual report shows that service scholarship payments in 2022 totaled nearly $6 million for about 1,000 people. Carell recounted his own career with the Guard and said the tuition assistance enabled him to get a bachelor's degree in business management 16 years after he graduated high school. With now 37 years of service in the Iowa National Guard, coming from a financially challenged Rural Iowa kid with no college education, no real direction in my life. I stand before you today as a general officer, the holder of a master's degree selected by our own governor to serve as the 27th Adjutant General of the Iowa National Guard, Correll said. The Guard seeks to build a new $20 million armory on the south side of West Des Moines to train its 2,400 soldiers who live in or near the metro area. Construction of the facility is expected to begin this year and will be complete by 2025, Carell said. The federal government is paying 75% of that cost, and the state will pay 25%. 
All right, that takes care of everything on the front page. Moving on now to page A3, since A2 is all follow-on stories. Musk faces trial over his Tesla tweets. What's this about? It's an AP story. Michael Leidke is the writer. Dateline, San Francisco, California. While still grappling with the fallout from a company he did take private, beleaguered billionaire, beleaguered, billionaire Elon Musk is now facing a trial over a company he didn't. Long before Musk purchased Twitter for $44 billion in October, he had set his sights on Tesla, the electric automaker where he continues to serve as CEO and from which he derives most of his, most of his wealth and fame. Musk claimed in an August 7, 2018 tweet that he had lined up the financings to pay for a $72 billion buyout of Tesla, which he then amplified with a follow-up statement that made a deal seem imminent. But the buyout never materialized, and now Musk will have to explain his actions under oath in a federal court in San Francisco. The trial, which begins on Tuesday with jury selection, was triggered by a class action lawsuit on behalf of investors who own Tesla stock for a 10-day period in August of 2018. Musk's tweets back then fueled a rally in Tesla's stock price that abruptly ended a week later after it became apparent that he didn't have the funding for a buyout after all. That resulted in him scrapping his plan to take the automaker private, culminating in a $40 million settlement with the U.S. Security Securities regulators that also required him to step down as the company chairman. Musk has since contended he entered that settlement under duress and maintained he believed he had locked up financial backing for a Tesla buyout during meetings with representatives from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. The trial's outcome may hinge on the jury's interpretation of Musk's motive for tweets that the U U.S. District Judge Edward Chen has already decided were a falsehood. Chen dealt Musk another setback on Friday when he rejected Musk's bid to, tr to transfer the title to a federal court in Texas where Tesla moves its headquarters in 2021. Musk had argued that negative coverage of his Twitter purchase had poisoned the jury pool in the San Francisco Bay Area. Musk's leadership of Twitter, where he has gutted the staff and alienated users and advertisers, has proven unpopular among, tes among Tesla's current stockholders who are worried he has been devoting less time to steering the automaker at a time of intensifying competition. Those concerns contributed to a 65% decline in Tesla's stock last year that wiped out more than $700 billion in shareholder wealth, far more than the $14 billion swing in fortune that occurred between the company's high and low stock prices during the August 7th through 17th, 2018 period covered in the class action lawsuit. I'm sorry, everyone, that, that reading about Elon, he's just such a fascinating person. For them to say that he's beleaguered is just maybe a little much for me to take uh, their writing seriously. <sighs> More drama in the world of financial stuff. They regulate that to death today. Anyway. MLK's daughter calls for action. Father's legacy must be more than quotes, she says at service. This is a uh, story on page four now that we go to by Bill Barrow of the Associated Press Dateline Atlanta. America has honored Martin Luther King Jr. with a federal holiday for nearly four decades, yet still hasn't fully embraced and acted on the lessons from the slain civil rights leader, his youngest daughter said Monday. 
The Reverend Bernice King, who leads the King Center in Atlanta, said leaders, especially politicians, too often cheapen her father's legacy into a comfortable and convenient king, offering easy platitudes. We love to quote King in and around the holiday, but then we refuse to live King 365 days of the year, she declared at the commemorative service at Ebenezer Baptist Church where her father once preached. That service, sponsored by the Center and held at Ebenezer annually, headlined observances of the 38th federal King holiday. King, gunned down in Memphis in 1968, as he advocated for better pay and working conditions for the city's sanitation workers, would have celebrated his 94th birthday Sunday. Her voice rising and falling in cadences similar to her father's, Bernice King bemoaned institutional and individual racism, economic and health care inequalities, police violence, hard-line immigration structures, and the climate crisis. She said she's exhausted, exasperated, and frankly disappointed to hear her father's words about justice quoted so extensively alongside so little progress. He was God's prophet sent to this nation and even the world to guide us and forewarn us. A prophetic word calls for an inconvenience because it challenges us to change our hearts, our minds, and our behavior, Bernice King said. Joe Biden addressed an MLK breakfast Monday hosted in Washington by the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network. This is a time for choosing, Biden said, repeating themes from a speech that he delivered Sunday at Ebenezer at the invitation of Senator Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor at Ebenezer who recently won re-election to a full term as governor's, I'm sorry, as Georgia's first US, black U.S. senator. We will choose democracy over autocracy or community over chaos, love over hate, Biden asked Monday. Okay, back to reality here. Russian airstrike deaths rise to 40. This is from Dnipro, Ukraine, in the digest section. Ukrainian emergency crews on Monday sifted through what was left of the Dnipro apartment building destroyed by a Russian missile, placing bodies from one of the war's deadliest single attacks in months in black bags and gingerly carrying them across steep piles of rubble. Authorities said the death toll from Saturday's strike rose to 40 and that 30 people remained missing Monday. About 1,700 people lived in the multi-story building. The regional administration said 39 people have been rescued and at least 75 were wounded. The reported death toll put it among the deadliest attacks on Ukrainian civilians since before the summer, according to the Associated Press Frontline War Crimes Watch Project. Residents said the apartment tower did not house any military facilities. Searchers retrieved data recorders. This is from Pokhara, Nepal. Search teams retrieved the flight data and cockpit voice recorders Monday of a passenger plane that plummeted into a gorge on approach to a new airport in the foothills of the Himalayas, officials said, as investigators looked for the cause of Nepal's deadliest plane crash in 30 years. At least 69 of the 72 people aboard were killed, and officials believe the three missing are also dead. Rescuers combed through the debris, scattered down a 1,000-foot deep gorge for them. Many of the passengers on Sunday's flight were returning home to Pokhara, though the city is also popular with tourists since it's the gateway to the Annapurna Circuit hiking trail. It's still not clear what caused the crash, which took place less than a minute's flight from the airport on a mild day with little wind. 
In the briefs section, from China, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will meet with her Chinese counterpart, counterpart Vice President Liu He, on Wednesday in Switzerland to discuss economic developments between the two nations. Shooting six people, including a 17-year-old mother and her six-month-old baby, were killed in a shooting Monday at a home in Central California, and authorities are searching for at least two suspects, sheriff's officials said. Investigators believe there is a gang connection to the killings. Meth contamination. For the second time in a month, Colorado Library closed its doors to clean up methamphetamine contamination. Officials in the Denver suburb of Englewood shut down the city library Wednesday within a couple of hours of getting test results, city spokesman Chris Hargath said. Mafia arrest. Italy's number one fugitive, Matteo Messina Denaro, a convicted mafia boss who ordered some of the nation's most heinous killings, was arrested Monday at a private clinic in Sicily after three decades on the run, Italian parliamentary paramilitary police said. From Germany, Christine Lambrecht, Germany's much-criticized defense minister, announced her resignation Monday after a series of missteps while her department steers the massive project of modernizing the country's military and oversees expanding weapons deliveries to Ukraine. And finally, shooting charges. Authorities filed aggravated murder charges this week against Martin Muniz, age 41, who was accused of having shot and killed his father, sister, and nephew, as well as another man, and critically wounded an 8-year-old girl in Cleveland, a Cleveland home last week. Authorities said Muniz was scheduled to be arraigned Tuesday in Cleveland Municipal Court. And wow, we are way past the halfway point. That came fast. Here is your obituary as we... Uh, First, tell you, though, real quick, that uh, you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Re Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All material heard here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader today filling in. My name is Andrew Howe. Move on now to the obituary for Terry Zerbel. On January 15, 2023, Terry passed away peacefully at the age of 75 after a brief illness. Terry was the wife of Charlie Zerbel, married August 14, 1982. Mother of two children, friend and smiling face to all who encountered her. She was an exceptional wife and mother, and she cared deeply for her family and friends. Terry was a nurse for the better part of 50 years, and her patients can attest to how loving and caring she was. Terry is survived by her husband, Charlie, daughter, Christina, son, Jeremy, and five grandchildren, Michael, Lauren, Amber, Mia, and Thea. We have one death notice here for Mary A. That Mary M E R R I, Mary A. Edgar Madison, age 74 of Clear Lake, who died Friday, January 13th at Mercy One North Iowa Hospice of Mason City. Arrangements are with the Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel of Clear Lake. All right, some more news here before we move into the world of sports. NIACC offering free health care training. This from the Press News staff. The North Iowa Area Community College is offering free health care training opportunities. Choose from eight health care career, certified nurse assistant or CNA refresher, medication aid or a manager, phlebotomy, IV therapy, emergency medical technician or advanced EMT, According to the press release, these short-term certificates range in length from four weeks to a full semester and are free for Iowa residents age 18 and older. NIACC has programs that can assist with tuition, books, uniforms, testing fees, and transportation costs. 
Navigators assist students by monitoring progress, problem solving, and finding employment after training. Patty Hansen, Dean of Continuing Education at NIACC, said these classes provide excellent training with a focus on helping people get into the workforce more quickly and filling the demand for trained healthcare professionals. This also allows those unsure of returning to a school a chance to slowly ease into a learning environment. And oftentimes, students will expand their original goals, transferring to a two-year program. Space is limited. To learn more about this training option and the free supports, contact Pathway Navigators, Melanie, 641-422-4078, or Angela, 641-422-4312. Navigators will walk you through the application process. Applications will be taken until each class is full. Deadlines apply. For information, you can visit um, niacc.edu backslash health backslash nurse dash aid. Italian film legend Lola Brigida dies at age 95. Dateline Rome, Rome, Italy. Italian film legend Gina Lola Brigida, who achieved international stardom during the 1950s and was dubbed the most beautiful woman in the world after the title of one of her movies, died in Rome on Monday, her agent said. She was age 95. The agent, Paola Coleman, didn't provide details, but Lola Brigida had surgery in September to repair a thigh bone broken after a fall. She returned home and said she had quickly resumed walking. A drawn portrait of the diva graced a 1954 cover of Time magazine, which likened her to a goddess in an article about Italian movie making. More than a half century later, Lola Brigida still turned heads with her brown curly hair and statuesque figure and preferred to be called an actress instead of the gender-neutral term actor. Lolo, as she was lovingly nicknamed by Italians, began making movies in Italy just after the end of World War II, as the country began to promote on the big screen a stereotypical concept of Mediterranean beauty as buxom and brunette. Besides The World's Most Beautiful Woman in 1955, career highlights included Golden Globe winner Come September with Rock Hudson, Trapeze, Be the Devil, a 1953 John Huston film starring Humphrey Bogart and Jennifer Jones, and Buona Sarah, Miss Ca- Mrs. Campbell, which won Lola Brigida Italy's top movie award, a David D. Donatello as Best Actress in 1969. In Italy, she worked with some of the country's top directors following the war, including Mario Monticelli, Luigi Comencini, Pietro Germi, and Vittorio Di Sica. Two of her more popular films at home were Menchi's Pain Amore e Fantasia, Bread, Love, and Dreams Fantasy, as it's called, in 1953, and the sequel a year later. Pane Amore e Gelosia, that'd be bread, love, and jealousy. Her male foil was Vittorio Gaspin, one of Italy's leading men on the screen. Lolo Brigida also was an accomplished sculptor, painter, and photographer, and eventually essentially dropped film from the fine arts. With her camera, she roamed the world from what was then the Soviet Union to Australia. 
1974, Fidel Castro ho hosted her as a guest in Cuba for 12 days as he worked on a photo rep repertoire. Repertoire. <laughs> Lola Brigida was born on July 4, 1927, in Subiaco, a picturesque hill town near Rome where her father was a furniture maker. Lola Brigida began her career in beauty contests, posing for the covers of magazines and brief appearances in minor films. Producer Mario Costa plucked her from the streets of Rome to appear on the big screen. Eccentric mogul Howard Hughes eventually brought Lola Brigida to the United States, where she performed with some of Hollywood's leading men of the 1950s and 60s, including Frank Sinatra, Sean Connery, Burt Lancaster, Tony Curtis, and Yul Brynner. Over the years, her co-stars also included Europe's most dashing male stars of the era, among them Louis Jordan, Fernando Rey, Jean-Paul Belmondo, Jean-Louis Trintigant, and Alec Guinness. While Lola Brigida played some dramatic roles, her sex symbol image defined her career, and her most popular characters were in lighthearted comedies such as the Bread Love Trilogy. With lush eyelashes and thick brown curls framing her face, Lola Brigida uh, started a hairstyle rage in the 1950s known as the Poodle Cut. Gossip columnists commented on alleged rivalries between her and Sophia Loren, another Italian film star celebrated for her physical beauty. In middle age, Lola Brigida's romance with a man, 34 years her junior, Javier Regal, from Barcelona, Spain, kept gossip pages buzzing for years. I've always had a weakness for younger men because they are generous and have no complexes, the actress told Spain's Hola magazine. After more than 20 years of dating in 2006, the then 79-year-old Lola Brigida announced that she would regal, but the wedding never happened. They have a typo here. It should be married regal. Her first marriage to Milko Skofik, a Yugoslavian-born doctor, ended in divorce in 1971. Shame. In the last years of her life, Lola Brigida's name more frequently appeared in articles by journalists covering Rome's courts, not the glamour scene, as legal battles were waged over whether she had the mental competence to tend to her finances. On her website, Lola Brigida recalled how her family lost its house during the bombings of World War II and went to live in Rome. She studied sculpture and painting at a high school dedicated to the arts, while her two sisters worked as movie theater ushers to allow her to continue her studies. All right. I, that lady's way before my time. I, I may have heard of her, but maybe it's been a long time. Moving on now to the sports section. Section B, we start on the front page of the sports, sports section. It shows high school wrestling and the girls wrestlers here. Uh, Leela Sheehan, who's wearing a red shirt, and Avery Peterson spar during a recent Riverhawks practice. Making their mark, Mason City Girls Wrestling Program is growing by leaps and bounds. It's written by Austin Hansen, Dateline Mason City. Layla Phillips didn't start her high school athletic career as a wrestler. During her sophomore year, she tried out for the Mason City High School Volleyball Team. Phillips did not make the cut, so she began to search for different ways to compete. By the time the winter sports season began to roll around, Phillips was committed to wrestling. 
Her father, Jake Phillips, has been an assistant boys wrestling coach at Mason City for the last 15 years. He became the head coach of the River Hawks girls wrestling team when Layla took up the sport ahead of the 2021-22 season. I hadn't wrestled before last year, Layla said. I tried out for the volleyball team and I didn't make it, so that's when I went out for wrestling. I've been doing it nonstop. Initially, Layla was the only wrestler on the Mason City's squad, but she recruited two of her friends to join the roster because she didn't want to wrestle against the boys' team. One of the first athletes to join Layla on the mat was Kylie James, who had also never wrestled before the 2021-22 season. Both Layla and Kylie said they quickly learned how to take their lumps because they were part of an experienceless three-person wrestling team. I did my best with what I had, James said, but I didn't really know anything. Both James and Layla sought to improve on the mat during the summer months. Layla won the 112-pound bracket of the inaugural Wrestle Like a Girl Iowa Classic at Extreme Arena in Coralville in August. She also rose to the top of the podium in the 2022 Midwest Mat of Dreams conflict for charity, the Riverhawk Invitational, and the West Fork Open. Layla is currently 54-33 to 33 with 40 career pins. She's earned bonus points in 57 of her 87 matches. James, a 140-pounder, joined the Immortal Wrestling Club in Cedar Falls with Layla after the 2020-21 season. She is 34 for 45 on her career, but has won three tournaments since the start of the 2022-23 season. I did not expect it, Layla said of the success she rapidly found. At the beginning of last year, I was losing to girls who have been doing it for a long time. Obviously, I was having some doubts like, can I be good? I don't know. I've really made some jumps. I don't really doubt myself anymore. I know that I can improve. While Layla and James tried to make individual improvements on the mat, Jake tried to build up the Mason City Girls wrestling roster for the 2022-23 season. James and she, Layla, and Jake hosted multiple meetings during the fall months to try to convince more girls to go out for wrestling. And at first, they didn't find much success. Only six athletes showed up to the first girls wrestling recruiting meeting, but James and company weren't discouraged by the initially poor turnout. Eventually, their meetings began to gain traction. Honestly, I didn't expect this many girls to come out, James said. We had a meeting for girls to get information and stuff. The first one, like six people, showed up, and then there became ten, and then over time it just grew, and it's been great to watch. Jake said the River Hawk girls wrestling program now has 16 high school and 15 middle school athletes, a 28 wrestler increase from last season. Before 2021-22, Mason City hadn't had a girls wrestler since Tiffany Sluick Dixon in 2009. Dixon went on to wrestle at the University of Jamestown, where she earned multiple WCWA All-American honors. Dixon has since returned to Mason City and is now an assistant girls wrestling coach. The River Hawks have competed in over 12 tournaments this year. They're also 1-0 in the duels, having defeated Marshalltown 48-18 on December the 6th. I've set expectations really high, Jake said. We've talked about some really lofty goals as far as a program and individually. We're putting forth the work to obtain those goals. The girls have absolutely met the challenge head on. The Riverhawks 
will compete in the Iowa Alliance Conference Tournament on January 19th in Des Moines. Jake said he's hoping to see some strong solo outings at the event. Hoping for a bunch of really good individual performances, Jake said. And if that happens team-wise, that takes care of itself. Girls Wrestling Regional Action is slated to begin in the last week of January with Mason City headed to Decorah. State matches will follow in February because Girls Wrestling is now sanctioned by the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union. Athletes will now have to qualify for the state tournament. Layla competed at the 2021-22 state tournament and went 1-2. This year she's hoping for better postseason results. I think that I'm doing everything I can to match up with girls that have been doing this for their whole lives, Layla said. I've been having some really close matches with girls who are really good. It's cool to see that I've made that jump in such a short amount of time. Well, Jake's expectations for his budding program stretch beyond the confines of the 2022-23 season. And he said he doesn't plan to stop coaching at Mason City anytime soon. Jake added that he hopes to have the Riverhawks competing for the state championships before he steps away from the mat. I don't anticipate stepping out, Jake said. I have a passion for it. I love helping people get better. I like to think that we'll be at the top competing for state titles. All right, in the world of high school hockey, Mohawks split two games in Quad City. Staff report is who writes this. The Mason City Mohawks split a pair of shootout games with the Quad City Blues this weekend in Midwest High School Hockey League action. Sunday, the Mohawks rallied from a two-goal deficit to force overtime before they fell 5-4 in a shootout. Mason City trailed 3-1 after one period and 4-2 in the second period before Max Lang scored with one second left to make it a 4-3 heading into the second period intermission. Just one minute and 59 seconds into the third, Dominique Despinas scored his second goal of the game to tie it on assists from Kellen Canteris and Emmett Riley. Canteris had two assists in the game, and Dylan Bieber also scored. Chandler Radcliffe made 37 saves. On Saturday, Lang's shootout goal lifted the Mohawks to a 3-2 victory over the Blues. Lang also scored in the second period on an assist from Braden Pierce to tie the game at 1-all. Then in the third, after Quad City had taken a 2-1 lead, Austin Lloyd scored 7 minutes and 28 sec seconds left to tie it 2-all. Bieber assisted. Radcliffe made 24 saves in the win. Mason City is now 11-7-1-1 and stand in 6th place in the MHSHL. The Mohawks are in action at home Saturday at the Mason City Ice Arena when they host Sioux City at 8.30 p.m. Sunday replay, college women's basketball. Longhorns break down Cyclones home win. Dateline, Austin, Texas. Deanna Gaston scored 17 points, and Shaylee Gonzalez had 5 of her 11 in a game-breaking 13-0 run in the fourth quarter, and Texas defeated number 15 Iowa State 68-53 on Sunday. Izzy Zingaro's layup to open the fourth quarter pulled the Cyclones within 52-49, but they went scoreless for the next 6 minutes and 17 seconds, missing five shots with five turnovers as the Longhorns increased the defensive pressure. Sonia Morris added 11 points for the Longhorns, 13-5 and 4-1 and and in the Big 12 Conference, who have won 10 of 11 since a 5-4 start knocked them out of the rankings. 
Rory Harmon had seven rebounds, seven assists, and three steals to go with six points, playing all 40 minutes. Ashley Jones scored 21 points for Iowa State, 11-4 in the season, 3-2 in the conference, and grabbed six rebounds to become the Cyclones' all-team leading rebounder. Jones, the program's all-time leading scorer, entered the game tied with Angie Well, uh, who played from 1999 to 2002, with 1,209 rebounds. It was the Texas defense that carried the day, holding Iowa State to 40% shooting, 21 of 50, 52, including 4 of 15 from three-point range. The Cyclones also had a season-high 20 turnovers that were turned into 26 points. It was ISU's lowest-scoring game of the season, 25 points below its season average. College men's basketball, injury status uncertain for UNI's born. This will be our final sports story. This is written by Ethan Petrick. Dateline Cedar Falls. Northern Iowa finished its 76-72 loss to Belmont without its leading scorer. After returning to play with 11 minutes and 42 seconds remaining in the second, Panther sophomore guard Bowen Bourne's calf tightened up and forced him back to the bench less than two minutes later. Bourne missed the final 10 minutes of the game due to the lingering injury. UNI head coach Ben Jacobson gave an update on Bourne's injury on Monday, which provided little clarity on the road forward for the Panthers' star guard. He is doing better today, Jacobson said. I just saw him this morning, and he said he feels good. But we did not do anything in the way of practice or workouts this morning. He will not know until he gets moving around a little bit. Hopefully at practice this afternoon, the pain is gone, and he is able to get going pain-free. Jacobson added, you and I will know more following practice on Monday. Averaging 19.2 points per game, Bourne's league-leading production plays a major role in UNI's success. During the Panthers' recent four-game winning streak, Bourne averaged 21.3 points per game. Given his apparent importance to the Panthers' success, any missed time would be cause for concern for a team already down Nate Heiss and Austin Fife. However, with Bourne on the bench Saturday, a core of Trey Campbell, Michael Duax, Landon Wolf, Titan Anderson, and Drew Daniel assuaged some concerns as they managed to trim an 11-point Belmont lead to a two-point advantage with a minute 41 remaining. That group did a great job, Jacobson said. I do not know that I would have put Bourne back in the game no matter what that score got to. The calf tightened up on him, and at that point, with what he had been dealing with the last few weeks, it was time to get him out. According to Jacobson, that core of five mustered their comeback because they guarded Belmont better than the Panthers had in the first half. For that group, the three freshmen, Drew Daniel and Titan, to be able to defend Belmont the way we did, I felt was really good, Jacobson said. Then to be able to turn it into some offense defensively is where it had to start. Well, that's all the time we have for this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. We really appreciate you listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Don't forget you can check out this as a podcast, along with many of our other publications, at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Great to be with you. Have a great day, and straight ahead. <laughs>